0: If you're a guest with us, there's not usually a rumble of excitement when I say turn to a book of the Bible. Maybe there should be, but there isn't always. Um, But what you're experiencing is we were studying through the Gospel of Matthew. And about eight months ago, we stopped and took a break. In fact, if you've joined us in the last eight months, then uh, you had no idea that for two years we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We got to the 13th chapter, took a break, and now we are finally picking it back up. And we should be done by the time those in second grade graduate from high school. Pace we're going. It'll be a great study regardless. All right, we're in Matthew chapter 14. Our sermon title this morning is, When Evil Seems to Prevail. When Evil Seems to Prevail. Uh, I am a fan of movies. I am a movie enjoyer. And one set of movies that I enjoy a lot are the original Star Wars trilogy, uh, they are a classic story of good versus evil, and I particularly enjoy The Empire Strikes Back, the second film in the Star Wars uh, trilogy, original, original, original trilogy. There we go. There's a lot of L's in there. Uh, it's got some great scenes in it. You've got the ice battle at Hoth. You've got the unmasking of Vader for the first time. You have Luke meeting uh, Yoda, Master Yoda, you know, and Vader's stunning revelation to Luke at the end of the movie, which I will not tell you, just in case you have not seen it. It also has one of my favorite uh, lines in all the Star Wars movies. Uh, I'm a big fan of Han Solo and, and his humor. And um, one of my favorite lines, which is not one of my wife's favorite lines, is uh, when there's this moment of peril that Han Solo is facing, and Princess Leia confesses her love to him. I love you, and... To which he confidently replies, I know. (laughs) I wanted to get us t-shirts, you know, one with Princess Leia that says, I love you for Jenny, and one with Han Solo that says, I know for me. Uh, But Jenny would not have it. Today, The Empire Strikes Back is widely regarded as the best film in the whole franchise, but it was not universally beloved at its release. Both the critics and the fans had a hard time, they were conflicted over it and its it's darker themes. In fact, it begins and ends with defeat for the rebels, uh, the good guys. From the destruction of the rebel base, to Luke's inability to master the force, to the past finally catching up with Han Solo. Uh, the rebels, the good guys, they struggle, they survive, but their only real triumph in the movie is persevering when evil seems to be prevailing. And there are times like this in the Christian life as well. Times when evil seems to prevail. It can happen to us personally, through a struggle in a relationship, through health problems that we encounter, through trouble at work, but it's also happening to us right now culturally. Our country is abandoning truth. Christians are increasingly hated, fired, otherwise harassed for our beliefs. So what's particularly bewildering about that, uh, if you have experienced this as well, is that the loudest criticism against Christians today are for things that were um, mainstream just a decade ago. These are darker days that we are living through evil seems to be prevailing in many theaters, and like the rebels in Star Wars, sometimes it feels like the only real triumph we can muster is to persevere, to carry on. And yet that is exactly what God has called us to do, to patiently suffer for truth's sake, to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. We're to remain steadfast under trial, and yet in those times, we can be tempted to lose hope. When Jesus is being rejected, when the church, when Christians are being attacked, it's easy to lose faith. I'm reminded of Peter when he was walking on the water. As soon as he took his gaze off of Jesus and he's noticing the waves crashing all around and going up and down and the wind moving all what happens? He begins to sink. You take your eyes off Jesus and you begin to sink. And knowing this is a temptation, knowing that this is a temptation to us, when trials come, when it's hard, when it seems like evil prevails, our Lord prepared us for enduring these kinds of times and to understand these kinds of times. Uh, In fact, this is what we had studied in Matthew chapter 13. It's one of those passages that the Lord uses to prepare us to understand that sometimes it looks like His kingdom is failing, when actually it is not. And there were a series of parables that the Lord taught us in Matthew chapter 13 that helped us to understand that when it looks like His kingdom is under attack and failing, it is actually often advancing in ways we cannot see. So He told us the parable of the soil, where it would seem like the gospel is accepted for a time, but then actually one out of only four believe. Yet that one does bear much fruit, 30, 60, 100-fold. Jesus' kingdom, he says, is like a treasure in a field of great value, worth selling everything for, but only one man finds it. Or it's like that pearl of great price, but only one merchant is searching for it. Jesus says his kingdom is like a field where a good man sowed good seed and yet then his enemy came along and sowed weeds among that field. In other words, Jesus is saying his kingdom advances in a world where Satan saturates Jesus' work with his own covert weeds. And the world is saturated with people who hate Jesus and hate his truth and hate the church. And that's our mission field. This is where we work. We work. Until the final judgment comes when Jesus says, like a great dragnet drawn up onto the sword, Jesus will finally separate the righteous from the wicked and the wicked will be judged by the king that they rejected. These parables teach us that Jesus' kingdom will ultimately triumph. It will continue to advance, although it will appear at times to suffer defeat. Evil seems to prevail at times, and that's what we see in our passage today. Another example of this, it's the story of the death of Jesus' own herald, John the Baptist. So let's read our passage now. It's Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to follow along in your own copy of God's Word as I read the holy and inspired Scripture. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her." And though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry but because of his oaths and his guest he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body, and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. We ask the Lord to bless now both the preaching and the believing of His Word. One commentator described this text as one of the most tragic, and yet triumphant passages in all of Scripture. On the one hand, it tells the story of the murder of John the Baptist, and a more twisted and demented story you really can't imagine... Now, what we have here is a teenage girl suggestively dancing before a party of men, her stepdad lusting after her, a ruthless and cunning woman, a nerveless king, the cold-blooded murder of John, and the gruesome picture of a man's newly severed head being served up on a platter at a party. I mean, it sounds like some kind of gross, sadly hit HBO miniseries. The kind of thing we, we desperately want to keep our kids from watching. And yet here it is a chapter in church history. It is a story in our Bible. It's a horrible story. And the horror is meant to strike us. Evil seems as if it's prevailing. And yet beyond the events and beyond the plot and the characters of this story, for those who have eyes to see, and with God's help, this is what I want to show you today. Uh, Those who have eyes to see can see that even when it feels like darkness is triumphing, even when it feels like, seems like evil is prevailing, if you have eyes of faith, you can detect evidence of God at work. God at work, building his church. God at work, working all things together for those who are called according to his purposes. So that's what I want to show you here today. Three evidences that God is at work even in the darkest of days, even when evil seems to prevail. God is convicting. God is strengthening. God is saving. And so point number one this morning, the testimony of conscience. The testimony of conscience the first evidence in our passage that God is at work here is through the testimony of Herod's conscience that is highlighted for us in verses 1 and 2 so let's read these two verses again verses 1 and 2 at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants this is John the Baptist he has been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him Now, this is an interesting way for Matthew to start this story because he wants to tell us about John the Baptist being murdered. But he begins not with the murder of John the Baptist. That's going to happen in a moment through a flashback because it had already occurred. But he begins the story telling us of the time that Herod begins to hear about Jesus. And Herod associates Jesus with John. And what Matthew is highlighting for us is what is going on in Herod's heart and mind at this time. Um, He's obviously afraid. He's had John murdered. And if you have someone murdered, I take it that probably none of us here today have had someone murdered. Uh, If you have had someone murdered, uh, welcome and (laughs) Jesus saves. This is what we are about today. But... Granted, that probably none of us have had someone murdered. Try to imagine with me for a minute, if you had. What is the worst thing that you can imagine if you had someone murdered? It has to be that that person comes back from the dead and comes after you. Granted, that, that would be a pretty bad thing. And they're wielding miraculous powers. See, this is what Herod is imagining here. Oh my goodness! I killed John the Baptist, but this guy—they're calling Jesus—he must be John the Baptist back from the dead, or John reincarnated, or something—and he's coming after me with miraculous powers. And he's telling his servants, "It's like—it's almost like be on the lookout, okay? Because I think I'm in danger here." So what's going on is—is. Is Herod is afraid. He's afraid his past is coming back to haunt him. He's afraid that he's going to have to answer for his sins. Uh, In effect, Herod is haunted by his conscience. Charles, Charles Bridges explains, When conscience is roused, guilt is the parent of fear. When conscience is roused, guilt is the parent of fear. And this is the first evidence that even in the darkest of days, God is at work in the hearts of men. He embedded in us a conscience, a testimony to what is right and wrong. Our conscience uh, is talked about numerous times throughout the Bible, over 30 times in the New Testament. Our conscience is a God-given ability that God has given to humanity. God-given ability he's given to humans to discern right from wrong. And if we go against our conscience, it sounds an alarm, right? It tells us something, you know, that we've done something bad. Uh, and so, you know, you may, like me, think about immediately Pinocchio, the Disney movie. Uh, one of the best Disney movies, I would argue. Uh, there's great lessons in Pinocchio. And in Pinocchio, right, he has a conscience, right? Jiminy Cricket, who comes along and is supposed to tell him right from wrong. And if you remember the movie, what happens to all the kids on Pleasure Island? They They get into all sorts of troubles. They're, in effect, ignoring their conscience. Pinocchio's lost his conscience. as a symbol for all the other kids. And so they're doing all these kinds of bad, sinful things, things they know are wrong. They think it's fun. But what happens to them? Turn into donkeys. They start turning into donkeys. Uh, and it's actually a very good lesson to learn because uh, that's, in effect, what starts to happen to us when we ignore our consciences. Uh, we become less than human. God gave humans the ability to discern right and wrong with their conscience. He did not give that to animals. Uh, your dog, for all its tail wagging and tail tucking, does not have the capacity for moral judgment. Uh, it can know, you know, like and dislike. Master is happy, master is not happy. Uh, and that's about as far as your dog's judgment can go. Uh, dogs don't have that distinction to be able to tell, uh, you know, good from bad. And we know, we all know, cats don't have that. Cats have no conscience at all. Um, that is just common knowledge and commonly accepted. All you who have cats, what a mercy ministry you all are endeavored upon. But God has given humans that ability to discern right from wrong. In Romans two, verse fifteen. Romans 2:15 Paul tells us that God's law has been written on our hearts and that our consciences bear wit- our conscience bears witness either accusing or excusing us. So even when we cannot see God is at work, when we can't see him at work, we know he is at work in men's hearts. He's always there. Even through the conscience. Accusing and excusing us. In 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warf- warfare. Here's the charge. Hold the faith and a good conscience. Hold the faith and a good conscience. And then he warns him, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Friends, have you ever wondered how someone who seemed to walk with the Lord for so long ended up shipwrecking their faith? It begins by ignoring your conscience to go against the better judgment of your conscience repeatedly, as Herod did, pokes holes in the vessel of your soul. Sinning against your conscience is the first step in shipwrecking your faith, or in Herod's case, of never coming to faith at all. As Martin Luther so famously said it, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So, studying Herod's fear today studying his conscience at work here today shows us that god is at work he's at work in this situation he's at work even in herod though herod is trying to harden himself to it but it also reminds us that god is at work in us right now as our consciences accuse or excuse us god has been at work in you this week and god has been at work at you this morning Already your conscience has been speaking to you. God has been speaking through your conscience about ways that you are sinning against your conscience. But do you have ears to hear? How have you been silencing your conscience? Another word scripture uses for that is searing your conscience. Have you been looking at pornography secretly? Have you been wasting time on entertainment or neglecting something that needs to be done? Have you just been walking around in pride? Have you been sneakily doing something at work? Trying to get away with something? Kids, are you trying to get away with something? Have you told a lie? Have you been harsh with your children recently? Have you disrespected your husband? Have you been impatient with your wife? Friends, it's so important that we keep a good and clean conscience. Thomas Cranmer was one of the key leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. In fact, he was the key leader of it in England. Uh, From the reign of of Henry VIII to uh, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary as she was to be called, uh, Cranmer served as the Archbishop of Canterbury, But when Mary came to power, Mary was a devout Catholic, and she demanded that all the bishops in England converted back to Catholicism at pain of death. And so Cranberry, or Cranmer, who's the head bishop as the Archbishop of of Canterbury, he uh, held his ground for a while. He withstood her pressure and temptations until, until um, he was arrested and forced to watch two of his friends burned alive for their faith. I can't imagine having to watch two of my best friends being burned alive for their faith, hearing their screams, and then being put to the test. Will I recant? Or will I face the same fate? You know, and... We talk stories about like this from the Reformation or from church history, and they 're usually about the ones who you know they stand their ground no matter what um, but Cranmer is one of those stories, one of those instances where he gave in to his fear. Um, he immediately signed a number of of recantings of his faith, and so being the public figure that he was, it was important to the The officials at that time to quickly get him into a pulpit where he could read his recantings aloud and he could tell everybody that he had converted back and so they put him in a pulpit and he took to the pulpit and in this great moment in church history of of god's prevailing grace courage came back to cranmer and instead of reading those recantations he boldly repudiated them all And this is some of what he said. And now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written by my hand, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, for fear of death. To save my life. And as for much as my hand offendeth, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be the first to punish. For when comes the fire, it shall be burned first. And the officials at that meeting immediately rushed the stage, dragged him out of the pulpit, took him to the stake, and lit the fire. And as soon as the fire was roused, we're told that Cranmer stuck his hand in the fire and watched it burn, willing that his flesh would burn rather than his soul. Brothers and sisters, the importance of keeping a clean and good conscience. God is at work always, even in the darkest of days. And he has given us a conscience, and God in his kindness brings conviction through it. He draws us to himself by it. Only we must not harden our hearts like Herod did, but confronted with our sin and the testimony of our conscience, we must humble ourselves like Cranmer did. When evil seems to prevail, let us hold fast to the faith and a good conscience. Point number two this morning then, point number two, the witness of Christians... The witness of Christians. There's something to learn from this passage about the powerful witness of John's life. Even though suffering and death, or even through his suffering and death, John left an incredible witness. If you think about it, the only reason we know about this Herod, some 2,000 years later, is because of the witness of John. Through whom Herod is attached. Sure, there be a few historians you knew about him, but most of us would not know about him two thousand years, years later, except that John witnessed against him and held that witness even unto his death. And we need to be reminded of this. We need to study this because we need to know that even through our suffering, God is building His church. So look with me again at verses three through five now. Verses 3 through 5, here we read, For Herod had seized John, so this is the flashback, he's afraid of John, he's afraid Jesus is John, and so we're taking this flashback to what happened to Herod had done to John. Verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him, John, to be a prophet. Now, this Herod that we have in our passage here, he's actually the son of the Herod the Great, as historians call him, who was the Herod who reigned when Jesus was born. Um, That Herod, Herod the Great, had 15 sons to 10 women, and he named almost all of them Herod which makes it really hard to figure out some of the family line if you're tracing all of that. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but I will tell you, this family was one seriously messed up family. Um, This was... I don't even know how to tell you all the messed up things that uh, how you know there was I think three sons that Herod the Great had killed. He killed three of his own kids. Um, they intermarried because they all thought that they were you know to be preferred over anybody else in the world. And so there's just a lot of pride and sickness that went in. So what what you need to know for our story here is the Herod in our story, Herod Antipas, uh, is married to Herodias. You see here, but there's this funny phrase where she's called his brother Philip's wife. And that's because, she's called that because, she was actually married to his brother Philip first. And what happened was, on a trip to visit them, Herod Antipas seduced Herodias away from her, her husband, who was his brother. So he seduced his sister-in-law. She divorced her husband. Herod divorced his wife. And they got married. The other detail you need to know is that she, Herodias, also happened to be Herod's brother's, another brother's, daughter. So not only was she his sister-in-law, she was also his niece. So he seduced his sister-in-law and he married his niece. And it was that unlawful affair and that incestuous marriage that John preached against saying to his face it is not lawful for you to have her now there's something we need to know at this point something that applies to you and me today i want you to remember that john proclaimed the truth not only that jesus was the savior but he proclaimed the truth that this family was living in immorality Faithful servants of God declare the whole counsel of God. We live in a time where people want to pick and choose what they preach. They want to pick and choose what they believe. In fact, they want to pick and choose exactly around the same areas of struggle and sin that Herod and Herodias dealt with. Sexuality. They want to pick and choose what they believe, and so they pick and choose by pitting Jesus against the Old Testament sometimes, as if Jesus were some kind of newer version of God, better than the Old Testament God. Or, or they even try to pit Jesus against Paul, as if what Jesus taught was contrary to what Paul taught. We even see this in people that, that we know. For example, I saw recently Beth Moore doing this very thing. She was pitting Jesus' teachings against Paul's teachings on relation to women and their roles in the home and the church. She was saying that to understand Paul, you really have to what you really have to do, what's really most important, is that you understand Jesus's attitude towards women, and that has to get all the weight to understand how we are to think about them. And so, what she's doing is pitting Jesus against Paul. And I'm naming Beth Moore because maybe some of you have been influenced by her. And while I'm sure there are many good things that she has taught, and she does tell the gospel, I praise God for that. But there is no excuse for us to elevate one part of scripture over another. Something we need to be reminded of today here is that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God equally inspired. We can't be selective in what we believe. We can't be selective in what we declare. We have to be bold in our faith, bold in our proclamation. John told Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. The question is, will we proclaim the truth Will we proclaim the whole truth to a culture that is just as willing to hate the messengers of truth as Herod and Herodias were? Are we going to pick and choose when and where we'll be identified with Jesus? Are we going to pick and choose which scriptures we proclaim and which scriptures we try to hide? Or are we going to embrace the whole counsel of God, embrace everything scripture has says, so that we speak the whole truth in love to those who desperately need to hear it? Friends, I I want you to hear me on this one. Cowardice so often exists under the cloak of loving others. Of not wanting to cause offense. You know, will you tell your family member that this is wrong. Will you stand up for this thing at work against that policy? Well, I just don't know. I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to put a stumbling block for Christ. You know, I, I hate to do something like that. Friends, it is never loving to be willing to talk about the Savior, but not willing to talk about the sins that the Savior died for. We have to be willing to talk about both. If you'll give the good news of salvation but not the bad news of what we need saved from, then you're not really loving other people. You're loving yourself. Because you know the hatred people can have for the truth, and you know what it might cost you to be identified with Jesus. You know what it will cost you to speak the truth, and because you love you, you don't speak up. There is love. There is love there. It's, just, it's love for ourselves. And John shows us a better way. And Jesus ultimately shows us a better way. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. Moses feared not the wrath of kings. Caleb and Joshua stood firm against rebellion. Elijah dared Ahab's anger to his face. Nehemiah, in a time of peril, declared, Should such a man as I flee... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood undaunted before the king of Babylon. The apostles' boldness, we're told, astonished their enemies. Paul stood trial before a Roman governor and even King Nero's courts and made a strong defense of the gospel. Friends, the faithful and true Christian must be bold in his witness to this world, even willing to suffer patiently for the truth's sake, for Christ's sake, for the lost's sake. Which brings us to the second half of this part of the story with Herod's infamous birthday party and what happens there, verses 6 through 8. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. This is his stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter, who was a teenager, and saying that he was pleased by her is a tame way of saying that he lusted after her. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. How dare he preach against me? How dare he tell me, the queen and the king, that it's unlawful for us to be married? And the king was sorry. I think that was a political sorrow, because we also know from Scripture that he wanted to kill him, so I think he was politically sorry for the ramifications of all this, but we're told the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Told here, John lost his life in service to Christ, in service to the truth, and Brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to count the cost and see if we will do likewise. You know, for all our study, for all our study of what the New Testament has to teach about important topics like, you know, like family. We're a family church. We're big on family. We're big on raising kids. We're big on marriage. For all the church that we study about what the New Testament has to say about marriage and parenting, do you realize how little it's actually addressed directly in Scripture? I mean, just for instance, is how a husband should treat his wife. An important topic, right? And all the wives said, Amen. An important topic, but only addressed three times in the New Testament. But what's addressed on almost every other page of the New Testament? Suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for Jesus' sake. Friends, we have to be prepared to suffer. There's a lot of temptations for Christians in our day, a lot of talk about now is the time to try and grab back political power as much as we can in our day so that we can legislate good and so that we can ensure liberties. And listen, I'm all for doing as much political good as we can. But, but this is what we have to understand. The kingdom of God does not come through political power. The kingdom of co- God comes through cross-shaped witness. It comes through suffering in this age. Think about this. When our risen Lord said to the apostles, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He did so, we're told in John chapter 20, by holding out his hands, showing them near the nails pierced, showing them his side opened by the spear, affirming to them that their public witness would be one like his own, suffering for righteousness' sake. There is a cross-shaped pattern to our witness between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, think about the power of suffering. Think about all that God accomplished through Jesus' suffering. Think about the power of the testimonies of those who have suffered for Jesus' sake. Enduring sorrow with hope and faith Friends, what that does is it only burnishes the beauty of the gospel to those who we share it with. When people see us suffering for Christ, they are forced to say, oh my goodness, that's how much you value Jesus. Oh my goodness, that's how much he means to you. Oh my goodness, that's what this is. That's that important to you. Listen to me. This is what suffering does. Suffering gives us a platform that nothing else will give us. Suffering gives us a platform that God uses in His grace to show others how valuable following Jesus truly is. And this is why Tetrillian could look at church history and say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because there's no more powerful witness than that. Giving your life for Jesus' sake. And this is what John's murder teach us. It looks like evil has prevailed, and yet through his witness and through his suffering, the gospel is proclaimed and continues to advance. All right, we need to come finally to the third point here today. The third point in this passage is, in fact, the rejection of Jesus Christ. Uh, This passage is not ultimately about John or about Herod, but it begins and it ends with Jesus to remind us that it's all about Jesus here. What we have happening in this part of Matthew is the rejection of Jesus is ramping up in this gospel. He was just rejected in Nazareth at the end of chapter 13, and now he is rejected by the one who beheaded John and associates Jesus with him. The resistance is ramping up. Jesus has been rejected by both the commoners in Nazareth and the king of Galilee, who is Herod. And together, these pairs—these uh, pairs are a kind of what's called a mirism. Two opposites refer to the whole. Right. So you lose your keys. Your wife says, well, "Where are they? Where, where have you? I've searched high and low. Where are your keys? I've searched high and low. In other words, I've searched." Everywhere, right? And that's what these two examples, Matthew gives it. From the commoners in Nazareth on up to the heights of the royal court in Galilee, Jesus is being rejected. He's getting rejected everywhere. Herod bound and murdered John, and shortly hereafter in Matthew 17, Jesus is going to teach his disciples, I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but they did to him whatever they pleased and so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands and then the disciples understood that it was that he was speaking to them of john the baptist john came they did whatever he wanted and soon they're going to do the same to jesus and studying this passage it's easy to imagine the disciples of john and of jesus suffering through the test of their faith here john has just been murdered Jesus is being rejected everywhere. This is one of those times where it's starting to seem like, you know, for all the good that we experienced with with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, now it feels like darkness is starting to prevail. What's going on here? But friends, I want you to see that from the other side of the cross where we sit today and look back at this, we can see that even in this, God in his providence was working. Even in the rejection of Jesus, God was at work. You see, it was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to be utterly rejected. Despised by his own. Even this was a part of God's plan. And really, this is the deepest knot in the theology of this chapter, of this story, so follow along with me here. It was necessary. Jesus' rejection was necessary for the purpose of his first coming, which was the saving of his people through substitution. Everything that was foreshadowed in all the sacrificial system, from the Passover to the Day of Atonement, on to the statements of the suffering servant in Isaiah, Jesus had to be rejected in our place. Only in being so thoroughly and completely rejected would Jesus be taking on the penalty that we deserved for our sins. See what I'm saying is the rejection of Jesus by those who knew him in Nazareth on up to the great king of Galilee, all of that was as horrible and terrible and wrong as could be and yet in the mysterious providence of God, all of this was a part of Jesus beginning to bear the suffering for sins that he never committed but that we have. You know, it's it's interesting if you think about the theme of rejection in scripture, the whole need of the gospel started with rejection. It was Adam and Eve rejecting God in the garden and His commands, which caused God to reject them. And born into Adam as we are, born into sin, we are born under the same rejection unless there is salvation. Friends, this is what the gospel is all about. Those who have been rejected because they rejected God can be accepted if they will accept Jesus. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of rejection by taking that curse upon himself to redeem us back, to buy us back. What do you do when you buy something? You see it in a, in a marketplace or you see it out there and you choose it and say, I want to pay the price for it. Those who have been rejected are those who are accepted by God. We are chosen by him and he purchases us the price and it's all the cost of Jesus f- receiving our rejection for us. He was rejected by man on the cross. He was even temporarily rejected by God so that we can be eternally accepted. And with Christ as your Savior, nothing you've done can turn God's heart against you. There is no failing or flaw of yours that can make God reject you. This is not something you have to earn. This is not something you have to work for. You don't have to be a good enough person. It is a gift of free grace. All you have to do is receive it. John 1, 11 and 12 tells us, Jesus came to his own, those people in Nazareth, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, if you're here today and you have never done so before, I want to ask you, will you receive Jesus as your Savior today? Will you receive him today? This is the most important decision you are ever going to be confronted with. God gave us His Son, knowing that many would reject Him. But to all who accept Him, God gives us the right to become His own children. Loved and accepted as His own. All we have to do is repent of our sins and receive Jesus taking our place. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, I believe God wants you to hear that through Jesus Christ, He completely accepts You. All the way down. Always and forever. You were convicted earlier about sinning against your conscience. If you're a Christian that has nothing to do with rejection by God. That is his kindness. There is nothing that can separate you now from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus rejected for you. This is what Paul teaches us in that great passage in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, shall persecution or famine, shall nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, even in Jesus's rejection, God is at work to bring us acceptance. It is the great and marvelous truth of the gospel. And friends, this is what we live for. None of us should go here condemned today. All of us should go clinging to Jesus Christ, rejected in our place, so that we could be accepted in His. Friends, this is our hope and our salvation. So in conclusion, this passage is here to remind us that even when evil seems to prevail, God is powerfully at work. And for those who love him, God is working all things together for good. He has promised to build his church. And look around. You can. You can actually look around at each other. Because your presence here today, these 2,000 years later, is the proof. That the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ church. No matter the opposition, no matter the darkness of the days. Jesus has promised, he will be with us. And he will be with us until the end of the age. So God is still at work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's a wonderful thing to be reminded that you are at work always, forever, and in us right now. God, I believe through the preaching of your word, you have been speaking to people's hearts. Your spirit has been at work, bringing comfort or conviction. Lord, I pray that we would all not harden our hearts to your work today, but that, Lord, we would give you ears of faith. We would believe, we would receive, we would respond. And, Lord, I pray as we sojourn through dark days, that, Lord, um, we would be faith-filled, joyful, suffering warriors. The Lord, we'd take up the sword of truth and the shield of faith against the enemy of our soul, who is Satan, before the lost in this world will lay down our life. And Lord, we pray that through our proclamation, through our witness, Lord, you would bring many to salvation. God, I pray for those, all of us who are working hard to try to be more evangelistic, be more missionally minded, to be reminded that you send us out. We gather here for worship, but we are scattered out on mission every single week, Lord. I pray that you would lead us to those whom you want us to share with, that, Lord, we would be bold, declaring the whole counsel of God, holding out the only hope there is in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray that you would use it effectively to save the lost. God, they need you desperately, Lord. We pray that you would have mercy on them by sending us to them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.